knocks their a thousand beautiful things. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, our guests are Stephen Bates, Noah Reisman and Brian Gregg. While Stephen Bates was the candidate for the Greens for Brisbane for the federal election, he ran a cracker of a campaign and he joins us on the line. Stephen, welcome to the show. Hey, man. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you on board. What an amazing campaign you ran. Uh, but first of all, what's the result looking like so far? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> We're still sort of just waiting at the moment. It's definitely still too close to call. You know, it's still looking promising for us. I'm cautiously optimistic. But, um, yeah, you definitely get a vibe that the people of Brisbane had enough of the status quo in politics. So it's a it's a real nail-biner, this seat. But... Yeah, still, still, still cautiously optimistic that, that we're going to be able to make it over the line. It's on a total knife edge. You must be on the edge yourself. <laughs> uh, Trevor Evans from the LNP, the sitting member, he has conceded. So it's going to come down to you or Madonna Jarrett from the ALP. You must have your scrutinies out in force. Oh, yeah, yeah. We've been, they've been counting all since Sunday. And I just got told that they're counting all over the week, all across the weekend as well. So it is non-stop and I hate that I can't actually be there helping everyone I just have to sit at home and basically let everyone do their work and just wait on the results but yeah it's I always do this if it's going to be a three-way contest three-horse race we'd from our campaign over the last year on the door knocks we had on the phone calls we made if we got the vibe it was going to be it was going to come down to either us or labor so not super surprised that this is sort of the, the situation we're in now but yeah, it's definitely a knife edge, very, very close, and you're absolutely right. It is very anxious waiting for the results. So what issues did you run on? Yeah, so we basically, well, our sort of idea for our campaign was to get out there, talk to as many people as possible, and figure out what was important to them, and then run campaigns based on that. So that, yeah, that sort of direct democracy kind of aspect. So well, what we, the issue far and away above that people brought up to us completely unprompted uh, during our door knocks was climate change. So that became really the key focus of, of our whole campaign. So talking about, you know, getting publicly a renewable energy, 100% renewable energy by the end of the decade, more subsidies for electric vehicles, more investment in public transport, more recycling, more circular economy. It's all sort of stemmed from that anxiety that people had really for for action on climate. They saw the government and the opposition as not really doing much at all making sort of vague promises without any details. And so we made a really point, us as the Greens, of creating a big, bold, practical plan so that people could actually, you know, see a vision for the future and have hope again and actually feel invested in the political system. But and then obviously as we got sort of later into the campaign in the last few months, it definitely became the, the cost of living issue easily as well, played on people's minds. So that's sort of when... You know, people were looking around, and you could tell on the booths, definitely in an early voting, people were shopping around. People were looking at different candidates, different parties from, you know, politicians or different parties that they never looked at before. And we definitely got that vibe. People were interested. People wanted to have a chat. They wanted to know what alternatives were out there. So us being able to run on, you know, getting dental and mental health covered by Medicare, making childcare free and universal, that frees up so much money in people's bank accounts that they can then spend on you know, themselves or their families or whatever they want to do. But it frees up so much of their income to, you know, give them more economic security. So I think that message really resonated with people as well, that we were looking to make what, what the bare essentials cost, make that cheaper and more affordable, if not free. 
and then give people more freedom to use their own money how they want to without being you know bogged down by paying for the bare necessities all the time. So that's sort of yeah, that's sort of where I think the Greens and our campaign did quite well in that. You know, ironically, if you listen to the community, you actually get an idea of what they want, and you can campaign on that, which is what democracy should be about. And that's effectively that's what we did. We listened to people, we gave them a vision for the future, and fingers crossed, they liked what they heard. Well, they definitely did across all of Queensland with the huge results we've seen. But yeah, so it's been an amazing, amazing experience, and I've gotten to meet. You know, so many people and so many community groups and NGOs who just do amazing work, unpaid most of the time, because they just want to make their community better and they just want someone in government who's going to be in their corner and have their back. So hopefully if I do get across the line, that, that's what I'll be. Your campaign had a great energy. Uh, there must have been incredible morale among your team. Uh, what was it like for you personally campaigning? I mean, you must have been living and breathing at 24-7 during the campaign. Yeah, I was also having to work full-time until about March. So that was, I was you know using up every piece of energy and mental capacity that I possibly could in my life. But the thing is, you know, when you're passionate about it, it doesn't feel like work. And for me, it didn't feel like work. It was a lot of effort. But because, you know, you're actually giving people hope for once and you would be able to tell people that, you know, the way things are, they don't always have to be like that. You were giving people hope outside of the status quo. But yeah, we had such a such an amazing team of people around us and so many volunteers who were just so hyped and who wanted, you know, be a change and create positive change in Brisbane. And yeah, I'm so, so proud of the work that everyone on the campaign has done and of the culture we created because it was. It was such a good cross-section of the population, you know, old, young, different races, gender, sexualities, everyone from across Brisbane who wanted to be involved in the campaign because they saw us as, you know, they saw themselves in the campaign and that's why they wanted to get involved. So, yeah, I'm so, so proud and thankful for everyone who, you know, donated their time or their money or their yard to put up a yard sign for us. It's yeah, all just culminated into this amazing experience. And, yeah, I like to think that, you know, people have acquired skills on this campaign or gotten more confident from talking to people, and they can take that into their personal lives as well. So getting that holistic approach for people so they feel empowered as well as empowering others. It's been amazing. Brisbane, of course, is one of the queerest electorates in the country. And uh, you got a lot of coverage internationally, in fact, for your <laughs> Grinder ads. Do tell us about those incredible ads on Grinder that got so much attention. Oh, yeah, that sort of. You know, we, basically, the logic behind it was I'm gay, I've used Grinder like we all have. And um, yeah, I thought, you know, Brisbane's a, a really young electorate, it's a really queer electorate. This is a nice way to be able to meet, you know, meet people where they're at and put our message onto a different sort of platform. And that was all we sort of really thought of it. <laughs> so we went ahead, made these ads, and then they got approved and they went out there. And then all of a sudden I started getting emails from media that <laughs> were saying things like, these ads are really, really funny. So we had um, some of the lines we had were, you know, spice up Canberra with a third, or you always come first with the Greens and the best parliaments are hung. Super tongue-in-cheek stuff because that's the vibe that Grinder has. You know, making it relevant for the audience. But yeah, we started getting all these calls and messages from media domestically, internationally as well, like you said. And they just sort of just blew up. <laughs> everyone, everyone thought they were good. I think my life peaked when someone sent me a video of our ads on Grun, and I thought, oh, you know, 
life can't get better than this at the moment. We've we've made it in terms of marketing. And the panel there said that it was that they thought it was really cool. So I was like, yep, done. Tech life has peaked. It's hit its peak. But um, yeah, it's been amazing. And look, you know, as like tongue in cheek as they were, I think it genuinely got people interested in the greens because you know it it got into different medias that we don't usually get access to, like. Commercial radio talked about it. Even, you know, News Corp, the Courier Mail did a positive piece on it as well. You know, these sort of outlets that we usually, and these demographics that we usually struggle to reach, people were suddenly interested in it because it was, you know, different and funny and it was me just poking fun at myself, essentially. But, you know, it opened up that conversation for so many people who thought, oh, that's really funny. Maybe, maybe I'll click on that. Maybe I'll see what the Greens are on about and see what their policies are. So, I, I definitely think it played a role in the result for us so far and the positive swing that we've had. But um, Wow. So you think yeah, if you win the seat, it's because of the grind reds? <laughs> I don't know about that, but I feel like I'll have to write them some sort of letter and say, hey, thank you. <laughs> this your app, you know, for all its flaws, actually genuinely helped us. So, <laughs> but you know, like, I think it was a good way to you know, show people that now you can be openly gay and proud of who you are and actually be in politics. And I think that's really important as well. So, you know, it's that sort of dual purpose where you know, it's all well and good and it's funny and funny, but it's actually important to be out there and be proud of who you are because, yeah, you never know who you end up helping down the track as well. Do you think you've set a bit of a campaign template for uh, gay political candidates in Australia with those ads? Oh, that's a good question. I honestly don't know how to answer that. I feel like the reason it kind of worked for us is because, yeah, I suppose because I am gay, but as well with the electorate of Brisbane being so queer, it worked well too. But I guess it's always about, you know, finding something new and finding something different and edgy. And I think that's what the real benefit to us was of those ads. Not because they were targeted at queer people, they were, um, or that I'm gay or anything like that, but it, I think they worked and got so much attention because they were so different from every other piece of media that we were seeing from political parties around the country at that point, which was all, you know, sort of negative, negative, negative. Those songs, which are still stuck in my head from the Palmer ads and the LNP ads on YouTube, it was so different. And yeah, just a new flavor. And I think that's why it was interesting and why it got people involved. So I guess looking forward, it would just be, if you can come up with something new and original and different, I think that's the template to follow because you're giving people an alternative, some different messaging, something that I guess sort of, yeah, sets you out above the rest of the competition. That would be sort of, that's what I would take away from this. But. And it was really affirming. It was really sex positive. You know, it was really positive all round, you know, in response to all of the negativity our community got during the campaign mm. from the, from the, from the government. Did you find that more people actually wanted to volunteer on your campaign because of those ads? Yeah. Yes. Actually, yeah, we did. And I think that's a, such a good point as well, because it came at a time where, you know, so many people in our community were just being completely thrown under the bus by the government to try and score some cheap political points. We actually had, you know, so many like gay, lesbian, bi, trans, queer, every, all different volunteers that said, hey, I've seen your ads. You're proud of who you are. Your campaign is obviously a safe space for us. Can we get involved? So we've had, yeah, like I said, we've had such a diverse group of people that have been helping us. And that makes the campaign even better. And I think that's why we've seen this result because, you know, we've had people from across different communities 
and within our own queer community, wanting to get involved and feeling like they have this avenue, this safe space where they can be themselves. And then that in turn just makes a campaign or whatever it may be, campaign, workplace or anything, so, so much better. When people are free to be who they are and free to be who they want to be, that creates a positive culture and a positive path forward. Of course, the defeated candidate in Brisbane is also a gay man, Trevor Evans. Uh, are you surprised he didn't try and advertise on Grindr when he saw how successful your ads were? <laughs> uh, I guess you'd have to ask him, but I I don't know. It was just, I guess it's something that, I think it had been done before in another campaign in New South Wales or Victoria. I think it was the Greens one, I can't remember. But I guess it just comes back to that idea of, you know, if you want if your messaging is that politics can be different and that it should be different, you actually have to take that extra step to make it different. So not just having, you know, different policies like we have, like dental into Medicare or action on climate change, free childcare, those are all important. And you have to also match that with different methods of campaigning. So not just, you know, the classic generic sort of YouTube ads or whatever you may see on Facebook, sort of all, all the usual run of the mill kind of stuff that doesn't inspire anyone. It doesn't, make people excited or make people want to get involved in the political system. So I guess being the Greens, that's sort of where we we differ in that we are some of these outsiders that are trying to come in and change the political system for the better. So we're not afraid to, you know, take those risks and actually, you know, think outside the box and try new things. And it it seems to have paid off for now, at least anyway. <laughs> have you heard from Trevor Evans since he conceded? Um, no, I, ha- I have not. But... Yeah, that's that's his business. Um, he's been, you know, an MP in this seat for close to a or oh, six six years now. Yeah, so he's done a lot of community work. So, and it was a long, long campaign. So, you know, we all deserve downtime and a break. I've definitely been enjoying a few days of doing nothing. <laughs> Well, Stephen, you should be so proud of yourself. It's a fantastic result for you and the Greens in in, in Brisbane. Uh, And thank you so much for joining me today. And, uh, yeah, I think a lot of people around the country are are watching this nail-biting knife-edge count with much interest. (laughs) Yeah, thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure to chat and hello to everyone down there. But, um, yeah, it's basically just a waiting game now. Definitely. So I'm on the edge of my seat as much as everyone else is. So we'll see what happens. Well, it's very exciting, very exhilarating, and uh, best of luck, Stephen. Uh, Thank you so much. Thank you. Stephen Bates there ran a cracker of a campaign in Brisbane for the Greens. You are an in-your-face on 3CR, and here's Prince.
Prince there, Uptown. You are on In Your Face on 3CR with James, joined by Professor Noah Reisman. Noah, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for the invitation. Noah, it's been a full-on few months for the community, a full-on election campaign. Of course, you are an author, a historian, an expert, if you like, on the history of the trans community in Australia. What are your thoughts on what we've just been through with this transphobic election campaign? What's your analysis now that it's done and dusted? Expert's a strong word. I don't like that word, but I'll take the rest of your generous introduction. Um, Look, my analysis of it is, you know, the coalition in the past dog-whistled, but... And, and, you know, John Howard, for all of his faults, I, I mean, I don't say this necessarily in a good way, but I tip my hat to the man was clever. He knew how to dog whistle. This wasn't a dog whistle. This was a bloody blowhorn. And I think the problem for them is that because it was a blowhorn, it backfired because it turns out the Australian public isn't quite as transphobic as certain people in the coalition thought it would be. I mean, you notice that they, they A, didn't win Moringa, but I mean, I think the general thought was that that particular candidate wasn't running for Warringah, but was running to send a message to people in outer western Sydney suburban seats that the coalition hoped to pick up. They didn't win those either. And in fact, they had swings against them towards labor. Now, I always say historians shouldn't predict the future, but I am actually going to make a prediction now. And it's both a good one and a bad one. I don't think the federal coalition will have learned its lesson, which is that its transphobic campaign backfired. And thank God it did. Like, really, it, like the trans community and their allies shouldn't have had to put up with the crap that they did. But you know what? It backfired. It proved that the electorate is much smarter than that, isn't, and isn't as transphobic as they thought. I don't think the federal coalition will learn this lesson because, you know, all of the talk immediately after the election suggests they haven't learned any of the lessons about the direction the electorate is going. But where I do have some optimism, I think that the state LNPs in Victoria, New South Wales, and other states watch this closely. And I truly believe and I truly hope that I hope my prediction's right. You won't see the same sort of transphobic campaign in the Victorian state election in November and in the New South Wales state election in March. I'm sure that there will be some people who can't help themselves who are so transphobic they'll speak up. But I have a feeling that the party on a whole will rein them in or or won't let them speak the same way they did in this election. And I suppose the fact that the uh, Victorian Liberal Party is throwing Bernie Finn out of their uh, parliamentary ranks for his comments on abortion kind of just perhaps says that they don't want to go down a far right, you know, tract on on social issues. But hey, you know, uh, it's months away, isn't it? Who knows what will happen? That's right. Who knows? But I think that that's an, a perfect example of, of and you know, I, I give credit to Matthew Guy for doing that. Some people are saying too little, too late. But you know what? Let's give the man credit for, for having done that now. I'm sure Bernie Finn will probably run as independent or something. I don't really know, but I'm sure he'll spout his conservative views. But I don't think you'll be seeing it coming out of party headquarters. Or, I mean, you know, even in this election, it wasn't coming out of party headquarters. It was coming out of the member for Warringah. But party headquarters was endorsing it. And by party headquarters, I mean the, the former prime minister. I like saying that. Well, absolutely, absolutely. And in fact, uh, there were various media reports that uh, Catherine Deves' campaign was actually being run out of the prime minister's office. Yes, that's true. They were, if we're to believe those, and I believe them. So it doesn't sound like you have much optimism uh, or hope of uh, Peter Dutton as leader heeding the lessons. Uh, it sounds like, you know, you're concerned he may double down, in fact. To be honest, I'm not sure about him. Um, I think his views are pretty conservative. I think we'll have to wait and see how he behaves because he might have learned the lesson of where to dog whistle, where not to, this, that, the other. But it's not him. It's all these other people in the party. You know, Matt Canavan and 
Blair Chandler and Holly Hughes, and it's all these other people. They're not going to keep their mouths shut. So that's why I mean by I don't think the party will learn its lesson. And in actual fact, if they do double down, it could contribute to them being consigned to the political wilderness. It could, um, which, you know, some people would support, but I'd say two things on that. We all thought that, you know, when Trump got nominated that they were never going to win, and Trump won. A lot of people thought that about Tony Abbott, and he won. But even beyond that, even if they don't win, that doesn't change the pain and the uh, suffering and the trauma that they can cause the trans community and others through the sorts of statements they make, even if they don't win. Of course, you are from the U.S. To what extent, and I guess I say this rhetorically, uh, was the coalition's campaign, transphobic campaign, straight out of the GOP's playbook in the U.S.? Well, again, I think the member for Warringah, oh, sorry, not the member for Warringah, the candidate for Warringah, got that wrong. Sally, you were great. Um, I think the candidate for Warringah clearly was taking this out of the U.S. playbook. The whole culture war, the wedge thing, was taken out of the U.S. playbook. But you got to remember the U.S.A., doesn't have compulsory voting. Um, it's very much drive your base and get them to turn up to the polls. B, the U.S. has gerrymandering galore, which means that, you know, most districts are already decided. Elections in Australia, thank goodness, by design, by independence, are won in the center. And I think the this election, if any, if any election of recent times has proven it, it's this election with the wave of the teal independence, among others. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully uh, this campaign and this victory for Labor has meant that the religious discrimination bill will not return, uh, or if it does... I have a, I have a different take on that, actually. Really? Do I tell. actually hope it returns, but I say this with big, big caveats before I get eaten alive. And, and I say this because I've actually dealt with an issue recently where there was genuine religious discrimination against someone, but actually there was no protection under the, the law. I think that what's going to happen, and I say this in a hopeful way, is a genuine, actual, legitimate religious discrimination bill will return, which genuinely, legitimately will be a shield and genuinely will be something to protect people like, for instance, Muslim women who get attacked for wearing hijabs or, you know, the actual religious discrimination that does go on. But it won't contain all those things like the Statement of Belief Clause, which was basically, you know, to unleash bigotry and the ongoing discrimination against LGBTIQ students, etc. And I actually say this in a good way. I want Labor to introduce it because if they introduce it and it's a good religious discrimination bill and it passes under this government, that'll make it that much harder for a future government to try and turn it into what the previous government did. And also, I guess it could mean the Labor Party could actually pick up the votes of of Christians, of religious voters, uh, if they felt that their interests were fairly represented through through legislation. Yeah, if, if to be honest, I wonder how much of that was overplayed in the build-up to the election. I think the religious right, we're going to vote conservative, and that's not going to change even with a religious discrimination bill. Um, but, you know, I don't... I guess. I don't know. We'll find out. But look, I think it's an opportunity now that Labor's in charge to do a really, an actual good religious discrimination bill. The best analysis I read of the last one was in the conversation in January, and I'll be quite honest, I don't remember who wrote it. But it said that the the last bill was sort of in two parts, and it said the first part was pretty fine. It's your normal anti-discrimination bill that adds religion and no religion as a protected category. Then it was the second part that had all the extra privileges, let's say, for religious people, that was problematic. If Labor does a bill that's sort of that first part, I think it's great, and I would love to see that happen, because I do think we need that in legislation.
What's your analysis and uh, latest news, if you like, about what's happening in the US in relation to the Republicans passing these horrendous anti-trans bills through their state legislatures? Oh, my God, it's quite frightening. I don't know. I really, it's, it is absolutely terrifying to see what's going on there. Um, I don't know what more we can say to that. I mean, it's really, look, historians hat, and I think I've talked about this on your program before, like since the 1970s, the religious right has, has weaponized children in their culture wars. But in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, it was gay and lesbian children. Um, we saw that in the movement to roll back protections for gay and lesbian people in the 1970s. And when I say roll back protections, there weren't many protections to roll back. But even the few that were, that they managed to roll them back by weaponizing children, and they're doing again with trans. And look, I want to think that long-term, just like with gay and lesbian, they'll lose. But I don't know. America's so divided right now. And it is shockingly frightening. I attended a talk as part of a conference last week that was presented from someone from the United States. And she put up a map that showed all of the states with the anti-trans legislation. And, like, it's a, it is like most of the United States. It is really, really frightening. Um, and I don't know what else to say beyond that, except thank goodness that they tried to, they've tried dabbling in importing that into Australia, be it through the, mem- the candidate for Warringah, be it through the talk about the sports bill, be it through, um, through the Latham bill and inquiry in New South Wales, and it hasn't taken here. And I don't think it will take here. But that said, I think they'll keep trying because they can't help themselves. I mean, the stuff that's happening in America is even more frightening when you consider it's also in the context of voter suppression and uh, hysteria and uh, violence around race. Uh, And you must see parallels between what's happening in America with what happened in Germany in the 30s. (laughs) I've been seeing that for years, and it, it, it absolutely frightens me. It really does. I mean, look, you know, and also the awful, yet another, what, 27th mass, shooting at a school this week, and of course, yet again, nothing's going to happen. I mean, it's very likely the Democrats will lose the midterm. Um, A, history tells us that, like, almost always the first midterm after a president is elected. I think the notable exception is Bush, but September 11th had happened. Um, Almost always the the party of the president loses seats, and the Democrats have such slim majorities that that would mean bye-bye majorities and lord knows what happens in 2024 but if if in 2024 republicans elected again like i think that's it for my my homeland like i really believe that i'm really glad i'm not there right now no on a really exciting front what's happening with your latest book and research <laughs> well look i'm actually writing the book now on trans history like you you your ringing me has taken me away from it for a few minutes which is a good thing but what i am really excited about is so last week i had the pleasure of presenting at the OzPath conference, which is the Australian Professional Association for Trans Health. Um, and I presented a big 88-page report that I've just authored that will shortly, hopefully in the next week or two, be on the OzPath website, which is the history of trans health care in Australia. Um, goes back to the early 20th century um, with sort of the, the beginnings of medicalization of transness. But um, most of the focus is on the post-Second World War, where you begin to see sort of, again, that medicalization, but some options for trans people who want to affirm their gender, you know, the beginnings of surgeries. Of course, there are serious restrictions in gatekeeping practices, and so the report talks about that, but also how trans people were savvy to navigate that through to the evolution in the last 10, 15 years or so, where you see much more shift towards informed consent and towards um, a lot more peer-led initiatives around trans health. 
Wow. So tell us about the chapter that you've been working on today, because there's so much to cover. But what have you been, what have you been doing today on this amazing oh, project? Today, I have been immersed in the fabulous Roberta Perkins and the founding of Tiresias House um, in Sydney, which is now the Gender Center. So, I mean, a bit of this story has been told before, but I've been was fortunate a few weeks ago to access the Roberta Perkins papers at the Australian Queer Archives. And also in December and January, I was at the State Library of New South Wales, where the other half of her papers are. Um, Look, the story, the sort of dominant story, as it's always been told, was that Frank Walker, the then Community Services Minister of New South Wales, read Roberta's book, um, which, by the way, I still highly recommend, even though it's almost 30 years old, called The Drag Queen Scene. And um, he read this book and was moved by the challenges facing trans people and then handed over some money to Roberta, and they, they founded Tiresias House. But, I mean, the stuff that I've looked at now that sort of adds to the story is that Roberta had originally proposed what became Tiresias House about two years earlier. She had written to the health minister proposing to set up what she called a gender identity center, which was going to be a sort of one-stop shop that would offer welfare services, employment services, health services, everything for, for trans people. She sent this proposal to the health minister as well as the attorney general of New South Wales, um, the health minister wrote back and was like, oh, sorry, no, this is we, our budget's too tight, and this seems more like a legal issue the attorney general should handle. And the attorney general wrote back and said, oh, sorry, I think this is an issue for the health department to manage. So there you go. But Roberta, being the very, very wise and clever person that she was, a few months later, the New South Wales government announced something called the um, community... Uh, I forgot the second word. There was a something with a T and then scheme. And it was essentially a funding program for social housing, or what we would now call social housing. And Roberta saw this, and then she thought, oh, maybe this is the way I could get the funding. So she put the proposal in through that, and that's why she got in touch with the community services minister and was like, hey, I had put in this proposal for a gender identity center last year, but actually if we could get funding for a house that would be a refuge for trans people, then that could also serve as a hub for all these other services. And that is what eventually happened and with Tiresias House. And the other fun fact that I learned this morning was the original idea for this gender identity center, Roberta was inspired when she read an article about something very similar that had been set up in the 1970s in Boston, my hometown. Um, so there you go. Sorry. That, this is what I've been working on today. And it's so fascinating. I mean, Roberta Perkins really was ahead of her time with so many legacies that are still groundbreaking today. Absolutely. She was amazing. I mean, I don't know if I've mentioned on your report before, but I'm pretty sure the earliest reference to the word transgender that I've seen in Australia, as opposed to other words that are now outdated that I won't repeat, was in 1984 when Roberta said it on a radio program. And she said, actually, I think transgender is probably a more effective word because it means blah, blah, blah. She was talking about stuff about the way we're socialized into gender and the way that gender is performative. She didn't quite use those words, but those are the ideas of Judith Butler, which a lot of feminists write about today and a lot of gender studies people. Judith Butler wrote that stuff in 1990. Roberta was talking about it in the 80s. So she was way ahead of her time. Absolutely, and it sounds like more politicians should be acknowledging her legacy uh, because she really has had a huge impact on the community that's given it so much resilience and uh, given so much you know, infrastructure, the foundations for infrastructure uh, and for the community to grow. Oh, absolutely. Look, I think 
to be fair, most of the work she did, she she did do some national work, um, but most of her work was very New South Wales slash Sydney oriented. But I don't say that in a bad way. That's where she was, and that had the largest community, and that was where the largest need was. But it, it wasn't just her advocacy. When you go through her papers, my God, the amount of detail and documentation she did, because she was constantly out on the streets, you know, working with trans people, get, recording their stories, but also sex workers. I, I focus on her trans activism, but she was a huge activist for sex worker rights as well. Um, it, I've come, some of the oral history interviews that she did in the 1980s were absolutely remarkable, including one that I read the transcript of a few weeks ago that supposedly was with the person who had the first gender affirmation surgery in Australia in 1968. Incredible. I know. <laughs> Noah, we're out of time. I could talk to you all day, but I'm, I'm so excited <laughs> about your book. I can't wait for it to come out. Well, uh, if I can get my, myself in order and actually like finish the damn thing, which is proving a bit difficult, but theoretically it'll be coming out next year. Yep. Noah Reisman, always wonderful to get your insights on 3CR. Thanks for taking some time out from your writing to chat with us today. No worries. Thanks, James. The wonderful Noah Reisman there. You are on In Your Face on 3CR, and here's Midnight Oil.
1978 self-titled album Midnight Oil there with Used and Abused. You are in your face on 3CR, joined by Brian Gregg from Just Equal, who joins us from Western Australia. Brian, welcome back to the show. Pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Brian, uh, huge swing to Labor in your home state, Western Australia. Uh, tell us about the result. Well, WA was was interesting in that not only did we see a, a very large but largely predictable swing towards Labor, but we also saw a Keel Independent pick up the blue ribbon seat of curtain, which would kind of equate the Melbourne listeners to Turak. So similar to uh, Dr. Ryan picking up Kuyong. Um, uh, um, so the, the old Julie Bishop seat is now a Keel Independent. Uh, and the candidate who won that is, I must say, a good candidate. By, by coincidence, I worked with her briefly a few years ago when I was working with Anglicare. So she comes from that small L liberal tradition. But the wider swing against um, the government in this state w- was largely due to two things. One is that West Australians very strongly supported the border closures and restrictions we had around COVID, but we were attacked and criticised for that by Morrison, foolishly, I think, and secondly, Clive Palmer uh, tried to launch a High Court challenge against the WA mandates, the border closures, and the Liberal Party very foolishly in the first few weeks backed him and supported him in that before they very quickly ran in the opposite direction. But those things cost the Liberals dearly. I'm glad you mentioned Curtin because, of course, the uh, defeated member Celia Hammond was a big supporter of the religious discrimination bill. Uh, I saw her during the uh, inquiry earlier this year and as one of the participants uh, from our community said to me, uh, she was a real fan of the of the bill. So the community in WA must be quite relieved that she's been defeated. Yeah, and the weird thing about that, James, is that the seat of Curtin had the highest yes vote in the postal survey that was done in 2017 on marriage equality. So Julie Bishop was in the sitting member, so 72.2% of voters in in that electorate said yes to equality. And yet despite that, the, the sitting member, the recent sitting member, now deposed member, was a supporter of discrimination against LGBTI people in the form of the Religious Discrimination Bill. So I think that's another example of how the Liberals had completely misread the, the messaging and method behind all of that. To what extent did Julie Bishop have a role in Celia Hammond's defeat in supporting Kate Cheney? I really wouldn't know. Um, I, I'm not that in touch with politics around that. What I could say in a broad sense is that many years ago, uh, Fred Cheney was the sitting member. He was a minister uh, in the, I think, the the Fraser years, a little before my time, um, and a very good one, a small L liberal. Um, and Kate Cheney is, I understand, his granddaughter. So it's kind of the, the family dynasty carrying on the, the tradition there. And I think what it represents is that the, the liberal voters, the small L liberal voters of Curtin, of whom there are many, were very, very keen. They were relieved to have the opportunity to swing the politics of that seat back around to that. Uh, and it's worth noting in a broader sense here, James, that uh, there was there is considerable anecdotal evidence, and this is really intriguing and more work should be done here, but considerable anecdotal evidence that there are many LGBTI voters who swung away from Labor at this election, and they went to the Teals and they went to the Greens. And the key reason for that was Labor's support for the Religious Discrimination Bill and their failure to speak up on key issues in other areas. For example, during the 
election campaign, the issue of the City Point School blew up in Brisbane, uh, where the school was discriminating against uh, students and, and now teachers. And yet during all of that, Labor was silent. Uh, but the teams were not. The teams were full-throated in the support of the LGBTI community, and so too were the Greens. And they have clearly been rewarded for that in this election. So there's a strong message here for Labor, notwithstanding the fact that they have one government. But they needed to work a lot harder uh, to win back the trust and support of the LGBTI community, many of them have them in this election. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, here in Victoria, in Kuyong, uh, the person who was running Monique Ryan's PR, if you like, on social media was uh, Rob Bailey, the son of a former Liberal Premier. Yeah, yeah, and lots of examples like that. And, you know, it would be tempting to say, you know, the, the loss of the smaller Liberals like Tim Wilson... Uh, and uh, Trevor Evans in Brisbane and Trent Zimmerman in North Sydney is an illustration that even if you happen to be an openly gay person and in theory a champion of our community, unless you actually stand up for us and do the right thing by us, then you will not be rewarded for that. Um, now, it, it's true that uh, Trent Zimmerman did on the religious discrimination bill, he did stand up for our community very strongly and gave a passionate speech. But the question is, was it, was it enough? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, Bridget Archer, of course, was rewarded in Tasmania, uh, increasing her majority, but it seems like the electorate was different in Tasmania. It seems like it was a status quo result in Tasmania. I mean, no seats changed hands of their five. Yeah, look, different political dynamics in Tasmania because Tasmanian voters were very sensitive to the fact that the religious discrimination bill, quite apart from being bad, um, it did contain a specific provision to override existing Tasmanian state laws. Uh, and that did not go down well in, in the Tasmanian constituency. But if we step back and have a broader look at this, I mean, it's true that Bridget Archer was a champion of, of our community in the election, and she has been rewarded for that. But it's also worth noting that many, many long-term homophobes and transphobes have all been given the boot. So it's marvellous that Eric Abetz is gone from the Senate, that Catherine Deeds failed dismally in Warringah. Gladys Lee lost her seat, that dreadful Amanda Stoker is gone from the Queensland Senate ticket, and that in the ACT, uh, David Pocock, um, an early and strong champion of marriage equality, defeated Jed Zizelka in the Senate there. So, you know, when you step back and take a broader look at what happened in the election, I think the country took quite a solid step to the left, or certainly towards more progressive causes. They stood up for women, they stood up for LGBTI people and they stood up for serious action on climate change. And, and the, 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 the challenge now for the Labor government, um, given that, let's be clear on this, Labor went backwards. They, they went backwards in this election on the percentage of the vote they got from the last election because they bled votes to the progressives in the Teals and the Greens. So the challenge for the Labor Party is to reflect on that. They now hold the Treasury benches and our government how will they move forward? Yeah, it was Labor's worst uh, primary result in a federal election since 1919. Um, let's focus on uh, the government for a moment. Uh, what do you think Anthony Albanese is going to be like as a Prime Minister for our community? Look, I don't have high expectations. I do hope that he learns the lesson of the swing against Labor and the strong vote for the progressive independence. I really do hope that Labor has learned its lesson from the marriage equality debate over the last, so we say, 15 years where they dealt with that very badly until the 11th hour. 
Um, but let's be clear, Labor went into this election with very few commitments, very few promises in terms of our community. They did say they would include us in the next census, okay, small tick, um, and they did say they would provide some more funding, some modest funding for some mental health strategies, again, good tick, but I would argue that that's funding symptoms, it's not addressing causes. Um, the reason that many people in our community have lower mental health outcomes is because of prejudice, because of discrimination, because of school bullying, school bullying, because of a lack of inclusion, uh, because of hate speech against them in the wider community. Now, all of those things can and should be addressed by a Labor government, but there is no commitment to do that. The other point to make is that I think all of us uh, in the community felt a huge sigh of relief that the Morrison Religious Discrimination Bill is now off the table. But that doesn't mean that some form of religious discrimination bill is not going to be soon back on the table. Labor has promised one. And Labor has said very clearly they would protect students, LGBTI students, from expulsion. They would amend the Sex Discrimination Act to ensure that. But they have been weak and ambiguous on the question of teachers. Uh, they've said they would protect teachers, uh, lesbian and gay teachers at work. That means employed, those currently in the job. But the caveat is they've also said they would allow faith schools to hire in accord with their values, in accord with their faith values. So the question is, well, OK, if the school determines that uh, an LGBTI teacher or someone in a same-sex relationship is against the school's faith values, does that mean they can be discriminated against? Does that mean the school can refuse to hire them? And my fear is that, yes, that's exactly what it means. So under that situation, Labor's policy would simply be a purge of LGBTI teachers over a longer period of time. That's not good enough, and clearly our community has to fight to change that. Will a coalition led by Peter Dutton uh, be more committed to social justice issues for our community, or will it lurch to the right? Look, it's it's bizarre, isn't it? Every time I think of Peter Dutton, I think of the time when we were going through the marriage equality debate, and it was the NRL grand final. Uh, Remember when Macklemore came out from the US and he sang Same Love at at the halftime revelry during the game? Yes, I do, yes. Peter Dutton denounced that. He condemned that and said that that was unfair, that the NRL was, shouldn't be engaging in this bias and this politics, and that what Macklemore should do, if he was going to do that, he should sing two songs. He should, he should sing one in favour of marriage equality and one against. So that's Peter Dutton for you. And I long for the day when a journalist buttonholes him on this and asks him the question, Mr Dutton, precisely what song did you want them to sing against marriage equality? So, you know, over to you, Peter Dutton. But that's the person we're dealing with. Remember, too, that when Rudd gave the formal and very moving apology to the stolen generations in our federal parliament back in, I think, 2009, Dutton was one of the MPs who walked out of the chamber. So that's the person we're dealing with. Can a leopard change their spots? I don't think so. Can he work hard on marketing the perception that he's changed his spots? Well, yes, that that's possible, but would the electorate see through that? Time will tell. Yeah, it's going to have to be a very effective marketing campaign, isn't it? Because his reputation uh, is pretty bad with voters, especially down here in Victoria. And I mean, you know, his uh, his track record on LGBTIQ issues as defence minister was hardly glowing. Yeah, and he was an opponent of marriage equality. Um, he, he has, from my perspective, he's always been on the wrong side of history. But the question now is whether the Liberals can come to terms with the key causes of their loss at this election. 
you know, they're currently having a debate, it would seem, as to whether they should move to the right or move to the left. And, you know, I, I don't think the answer is either. I think they just need to move to the centre. Uh, in my view, for far too long, they've been facing culture wars on the outer right fringes. Uh, and I think the electorate has slowly grown tired of that. But anecdotally, I'm hearing from, um, you know, the occasional Liberal voters here and there, older voters saying that they just couldn't bring themselves to vote for this government because because of the culture wars, um, because of the, the criticisms of uh, marriage equality, because of the unfair attacks on trans kids, particularly through the seat of Warringah and wider, they just couldn't understand that. Uh, they just felt that the federal government had no place buying into that and that the Liberals should return to core values. Now, I'm not an advocate for the Liberal Party, but, and they need to sort out their own troubles. But my general feeling is if they feel that they need to move further to the right to bring people back, then that's just an illustration of delusion. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be pretty hard for the Libs to knock the teals off the next election, I think. Not only that, but I wonder if the teals won't actually make some advances. I mean, you, you would imagine that they'll now be eyeing, you know, the next round of marginal seats, um, Liberal seats that might be within striking distance for reform. And, and similarly, the Greens will be thinking, I would imagine, will be thinking the same. They would be looking at some marginal Labor seats, saying, look, we can even make some further gains here. So I think we've seen a seismic shift in Australian politics. I can't see it returning to the to the old way that we've all become used to. We're now going to have very colourful uh, crossbench in the lower house and in the Senate, and I think this is the new norm. Brian, Greg, always great to get your insights on 3CR. Thanks for your time this afternoon. Pleasure. Brian, Greg there from Just Equal. I am out of here. Jacob is up next with a Friday rave, taking us out of his tame impala with Glimmer. We'll catch you next week on In Your Face. It's like, oh, bass. Cool. You know how you make the bass better? Crank the bass up. Yeah. You know how I make the kick drum better? Crank the bass up. And it's like, <laughs> no, not really.
In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their sponsorship of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities, a future without HIV and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or Facebook. Facebook.